So I'm Writing a Novel is the show where you join me, Oliver Brackenbury, on the journey of writing my next novel, from first ideas all the way to publication and promotion. In this one-man reality show, I'll share with you my ever-evolving thoughts and feelings on how I write, being a writer, and everything that entails at each stage of the process. I'll also answer listener questions and sometimes interview people who write fiction. If you're the kind of person who likes to learn how things are made and get to know the people making them, then this is the show for you. After seven consecutive interviews, we're going back to talking about the writing of what is still called Untitled Sword and Sorcery Novel. As it's been a while, and thank you very much, by the way, there are some new listeners who've joined in the last little while, I'm going to do a recap. But if you are one of the people who have been listening from the start or are otherwise all caught up, and thank you too, then you can skip ahead to approximately 3 minutes and 50 seconds. So okay, what am I doing here? I'm writing a sword and sorcery novel. It is a short story cycle, which means it's a collection of short stories that stand on their own but add up to a greater whole telling you about a period in the life of my protagonist, whose name is Vo. She is a Shetland Island type, kind of, whatever, you know, it's not. It's a secondary world, it's not Earth, but yeah, Shetland Island-ish barbarian who was raised by a blacksmith and a dyer, and those crafts matter greatly to her, as do her parents, who are both deceased. The novel begins shortly after they die, when she crafts a heroic persona out of stories that they raised her on and goods that she made using their tools and skills, and sets about getting off the island her people have been trapped on for a few centuries by a wizard, a horrible old wizard, who thought trapping her people and the people they were feuding with on a remote island would be a great way of uh, dealing with the issue of their feud causing chaos on the mainland. If you want to know more, you can go back to the very first episode of the podcast or episode 7 where I read to you the short story I wrote all about her getting off the island, and it was that short story which birthed this entire project. As the novel will be structured so that you can read any one story on its own and be fine, but you'll be rewarded, of course, for reading from start to finish, so too is my approach to this podcast where I'd like to think you can drop in on any episode and I'll tell you enough to be able to enjoy the episode and understand what I'm talking about, but you'll get more out of it if you listen to the whole thing from start to finish. So don't worry, you don't have to go back to episode one or seven or any other episode to be able to follow what I'm going to be talking about today. So the novel follows Vo's life uh, adventuring from age 19, roughly, when she gets off the island, to approximately 35, when her travels end, though I won't spoil how. And the book is broken into sort of four quadrants, the first of which I've already talked about, Act 1, covered in episodes before this one. You can go to the website, so I'm writing a novel.com, and it's all there for you. But all you really need to know today is that Act 1 is all about young Vo trying to become a capital H hero, like in the stories she was raised on. And by the end of Act 1, in a story called Disgrace the Stone, she is given good reason to be cynical about the concept of heroism and decides to turn her back on it. She decides instead of trying to serve others and bring about satisfying resolutions to all of life's issues, she will instead serve herself and maybe live life a little differently. Now, this is a big move I've been looking forward to, I'm getting into the second quadrant, Act 2, Part 1. Act 2, overall, is the most explicitly sword and sorcery part of the novel. The first half is primarily inspired, or, you know, the leaping off point for me, by Fritz Leiber's Fafford and Gray Mouser stories. 
Yeah, it's no coincidence that I had someone as knowledgeable about those stories as Michael Curtis on for an interview right before this episode. But like I said, you don't have to have listened to anything before today, so I'll just say Fafner and Grey Mouser are a big guy, little guy, pair of best buddies who are thieves in a city called Lankmar, which was pretty much the original, certainly in contemporary uh, fantasy fiction, fantasy adventure city. These stories were a big influence on much of the fantasy that came after, as well as the creation of Dungeons and Dragons. Once you know to look for their influence, you'll be surprised how many places you find it. You'll find it in my book, naturally. However, how much will you find? Am I doing like an homage here? Am I doing like a straight satire where the characters are plainly, you know, mirror versions of Baffert and Grey Mouser and Langmore? Or do I just want to take a little bit from it? You know, some of the swashbuckling tone and the theme of like loyalty and friendship being the core of things and yeah, that kind of stuff. Well, let's uh, see how I figured it out. Yes, it's time for that transparent look at my process thing, which this podcast is built around. Cracking open my ever so Canadian denim coated notebook in which I've been outlining this novel I see that it was July 20th of 2021 when I was finally able to go, okay, yeah, let's figure out what we're doing in the first half of Act 2. Why is Act 2 split in half? Well, partly that's a screenwriter brain thing of mine. It's a common way of organizing feature films is to have Act 2 be split in half so you can have a like precise middle of the film and there's rising and falling actions and all that stuff. But this is not a screenwriting podcast, so I'll just say my having done a lot of screenwriting influenced my decision to split Act 2 in half. The other thing was I knew the entirety of Act 2 was going to be a love letter to the most iconic sword and sorcery kind of protagonists, and obviously Conan comes to mind, and the back half is basically going to be the Conan half. Now, even though the public at large, their awareness of any sword and sorcery protagonists after Conan drops like sharply. <laughs> that doesn't change the fact that it's not all about Conan, and in my opinion, based on my studies of the last few years, in terms of the amount of stories and the amount of influence and the quality of those stories, I would say Fafnir and Grey Master are sort of the other half. You know, there are many other names and heroes who are marvelous, and I will discuss them in the future of this podcast, but I just don't think anybody else comes as close to Conan's impact on fantasy fiction and so forth as Fafnir and Grey Master do. I'm also a big fan who's read all of their stories, many of them more than once, and for the purposes of my story, I also think it would be really fun to go into something lighter than Conan's stories after the first act, which is not particularly dark, but you know, it's a coming-of-age thing where Vo is predominantly living kind of a lonely life, and so I love the idea of giving her a best friend to have some adventures with. And to have her in an urban setting after her kind of just wandering, you know, mostly the countryside for Act 1. So I knew this was something I wanted to do virtually from the beginning of the project, virtually from when I went, hey, this short story could be a novel. And I've got notes on my Grey Mouser, as I call them, in quotation marks, as early as late June 2020. I also chose roughly what kinds of stories I thought I wanted to tell and created a little arc where they become friends and by the end of this half they kind of have a falling out. Then I chose to focus on Act 1 because that needed to be outlined, but every time I had a thought that I figured, oh, that could go well with, you know, uh, the first half of Act 2, 
I would just put it down, label it Act 2, Part 1, and just put a line in the stray thoughts pages of my notebook that I use as kind of a catch-all for stuff that I, you know, I'm not ready to do something with or I don't know what I'm going to do with it yet. Sidebar, if you're the kind of person like me who really enjoys seeing the notebooks of creatives and how they organize them and so forth, uh, I have a picture-heavy, detailed post all about this denim notebook. It's free, you don't have to join to read it, over near the very beginning of the posts, on patreon.com slash so I'm writing a novel. Yes, I've got a Patreon. I've got a podcast. I am a modern man. <laughs> but yeah, if you do wind up loving the podcast and want to support my producing it as well as support my writing the novel, because any additional funds beyond the expenses of running the podcast go towards things like purchasing research materials or eventually paying for art commissions or paying a story editor to help me polish the story and so on and so forth, that would be lovely. There's all kinds of rewards. You'll see it there. Patreon.com slash so I'm writing a novel. Anyway, by July 20th, 2021, I had finished outlining the individual stories of Act 1 and it was time to get started on Act 2, Part 1. Where would I begin? Would it be with figuring out Vo's best friend? Would it be with a big world-building exercise in the city, my Lankmar? No, though both of those things are coming up right after this. I'm very excited to talk to you about them. What I needed to do at this point was to get my head around the story of act two part one like i already know it's going to be this friendship right but like and there are a bunch of little details kind of like the details i try to work out for each one of the short stories individually that make up this whole novel i kind of needed to take a similar approach i felt to just get my head around it because i had been building up to it for a while and i had all these loose notes you know it'd be very easy to get lost and maybe a little confused in what i'm trying to do unless i did a big sort of organization up front so I literally just wrote down, this is the story, got a red pen, put a square around story, of their friendship. Perhaps Vo's first really powerful adult friendship coming to her in the back half of her 20s here. She's like 24, 25-ish when she shows up at my Lankmar. The perspective, I thought at this point I understood what it would be, and I'll tell you, spoiler, I... I, I <laughs> Oh boy. Oh boy. I can't even finish this sentence. That's how messed up I am about perspective, but we'll I'll cover come back to that. What I wrote though was the perspective, put a red, you know, rectangle around that, will be mainly an alternating, though not too much, third person limited perspective on Vo and whoever Grey Mouser will be, you know, her buddy. See, I've already because Vo is the big one, right? I already think of her as my Fafford, but that gets switched around too as we go further. Liber. I noticed in his work used really omniscient perspective and also just frankly didn't seem to care about the rules of perspective a lot. I'm not saying he wasn't skilled. I'm saying he felt skilled enough to just say, ah, the heck with it and do what he felt like. I'm not the only one to say that. I was I felt validated when I went back over the Fafford and Grey Mouser section in Brian Murphy's excellent book on sword and sorcery, Flame and Crimson, A History of Sword and Sorcery, which I continue to recommend. Yeah, I think maybe it was because Lyra came up in a sort of playwright and movie uh, acting screenwriting kind of background. And so I think that just kind of leaked into what he was doing, which is interesting, given that I'm mostly, in terms of my professional training, uh, a screenwriter. But I really want to write this novel. So can I mess around? Well, am I Fritz Lyra? No. Was Fritz Lyra Fritz Lyra when he was young? No, he had to become Fritz Leiber. But this novel is already pretty ambitious in how it's deviating from a fairly standard novel format, which I've done a couple of times and will do again in the future. No judgment, obviously. Um, but yeah, because I'm already trying to do a bit of a high wire act with a bunch of other things, I think it's really important 
that I figure out the perspective and kind of stick to it rather than do what I feel like wavy gravy the way Fritz Leiber felt comfortable doing. As I mentioned before, in terms of Vo's character development, Vo is now living for Vo. That was very important to me. She isn't uh, cruel. She isn't, uh, you know, um, a complete bastard like Jack Vance's character Kugel from the Dying Earth series, who's just absolutely living for himself and will not help anybody unless he sees a profit in it. You know, she's still a nice person, more so, I would say, in this first half than when she kind of goes Conan in the back end. I would say she's also gone from craving a kind of satisfying resolution to war wanting a fun, pleasing stasis, which is to say kind of the boom-bust cycle of an adventurer's life, acquiring wealth at great personal risk, blowing it all, and then starting over again. The only thing that consistently arcs upward in this sense for her is her appetites for more adventure and more violence and more treasure and so on, which is uh, what builds to things kind of popping and bringing us over into the Conan back half of Act 2. In fact, the next thing I wrote down and then put big red pen around was Vo gets more comfortable with violence, slowly but surely, until she starts to make her gray mouser, in quotation marks I wrote down, uncomfortable. And then she goes full Conan, <laughs> which, uh, you know, if you've ever read a Conan story, you know, dude is not afraid of cutting down 10 men if that's what he needs to do. Whereas in the Fafford and Grey Mouse stories, although there is some variation given that Liber wrote them over the course of 50 years of his life, generally speaking, those guys are not what you would call bloodthirsty. They will fight to defend themselves. They will kill a guard if they have to. But on more than one occasion, one might admonish the other for murderousness or wanting to murder when they don't need to. And I feel that kind of mindset is a good middle ground between quote-unquote the full Conan and the way Vo behaves in the first act of the novel where she's trying to be a hero and she'll fight because that's what you do, but she's not out for blood. So yeah, I think killing for Vo will begin here as something where it, there needs to be a personal motivation like revenge, um, but otherwise it's just kind of like it's a tool that you don't want to pick up any more than you have to, though it is also a tool that grows increasingly satisfying. You know, maybe she's moved past quote-unquote heroic ideals and constraints, but not as far past uh, her desire for resolution as she thinks, since killing certainly does put that person's life to an end, whether or not it resolves your problems, well, something, something, cycle of violence. So, okay, Vo is living for Vo. She craves a kind of circular stasis of adventure and need and fulfilling that need. But as her appetites grow, including her getting more comfortable with violence, that circular kind of stasis that she wants really turns into a spiral that just gets wider and wider until things go pear-shaped in the last story of this part of the book and her and her friend have a big falling out that sends them off in different directions. I was able to make these decisions in part because of all the work I'd done before in figuring out who Vo is, and but also mostly where I had done work figuring out the key points in the novel where I wanted her to go, including the end of Act 2, where her Conan days have kind of you know, they were they were fun in their own way, but they got her in trouble and she's locked up by the side of the road and is vulnerable to someone offering to free her in exchange for all kinds of servitude, which drives us through Act 3. So knowing I wanted to get there and knowing that the friendship, the Fafford and Grey Mouser bit, wasn't going to continue into the Conan bit, I could combine that knowledge with what I'd learned about Vo in my earlier outlining uh, of both her and the stories in Act 1 that she goes through to figure out these kinds of wants and trajectories for her, which brings me to the last word that I chose to put in red rectangle outline, which was trajectory. I knew the trajectory of this thing, with its highest point being either 
kind of just before or maybe even in the story where Vo and quote-unquote Grey Mouse are part ways. You know, she starts off free from heroic constraints and stories that have ruled her life in the first act and winds up by the end of act two as a whole imprisoned without hope because of how far she takes living only for herself. Carried away, the more Vogue gets away with, the more she's inspired to go even further, like a first-year university student finally living their life away from super-restrictive parents. <laughs> the first sign she's on the downslope will be, quote-unquote, Grey Mouser being concerned by Vogue's bloodlust and Vogue refusing to listen to them, whereas before they would always have been held back. And so I figured the final straw for what gets her to the end of Act 2 as a whole, so I guess I'm kind of covering uh, Act 2 Part 2 a little bit in this episode as well, would be a dark repeat of a moment I have known for some time I wanted to have in the first story with Vo and her Grey Mouser, where she has to choose between losing treasure, let's say it's falling off the side of a building, and letting her new friend die. Now, in the first story, of course, she saves her new best friend, and then they, you know, that's part of a bonding experience for them, and they go off and they have their adventures in the first half of Act 2. So the dark mirror of that, which would be, I think, in the second last Conan story, but don't hold me to that, I'm still figuring it out, <laughs> would be her choosing the treasure and letting another later new friend die, which would be that moment for Vo in a more fantastic context, uh, equivalent to when you're kind of drunk and dancing and having a good time at a party or whatever, but then you kind of take it too far and maybe you knock your drink over on someone or otherwise do something deeply embarrassing. Oh, how embarrassing. I let a new friend fall down a pit and die so I could grab the treasure instead. You know what I'm saying. <laughs> that feeling of having crossed a threshold of, oh, geez, this was great until it wasn't. Thus, the high of everything that's been building from the beginning of this act is over. And we go into the final story of Act 2 as a whole, which I have, it was actually the very first story I outlined. It's been on my mind so long, called The Gibbet where she, that's what she's hanging in, one of those cages off a post by the side of the road where people are left to starve to death as like a warning of what happens to thieves and whatnot. Um, yeah, she's left them there, and I would like the reader to not entirely disagree with her deserving to be in the damn thing, which naturally sets her up for some kind of redemption. Does she get it or not? Well, that's another story, and that's basically the story of Act 3. Making myself write all this stuff out, stuff that I have been thinking about in bits and pieces here and there for months, over a year for some of the bits and pieces, was kind of like how, for some people, taking notes by hand is a way of really drilling it into their brain when they're in a class or other instructional setting of some kind. Well, that's what I was doing here, except that I was both the instructor and the student because I had to organize all this stuff and turn it into a little lesson for myself, the writing out of which would better drill it into my head so I could better understand the stories I was going to be trying to tell and how they fit into the larger narrative of both the act and the book as a whole. And it also created a nice reference document that I could go back to any time I would be feeling lost, which is a very valuable thing to have, let me tell you. So I think that's all I really need to get into in detail, though if you think I missed something or just want to know more about something, by all means, hit me up with a question by emailing it to so I'm writing a novel at gmail.com. But I will quickly mention what I did to finish this little reference document where I wrote down literally these words to myself, right? I wrote, so okay, let's... One, review the stories we've chosen, and then two, list the stray thoughts entries we have for this bit, tagging each with the story we think they'd fit in. Then, 
four and five, let's design Lankmar in quotation marks and Grey Mouser in quotation marks in whatever order feels right, followed by outlining the first story. Maybe do a library language study right before that outline. Usually when I create a little workflow for myself like that, a little list of tasks for what's up next, I'll do it on a post-it note because I probably won't need it after I've done it. But <laughs> I knew I would be talking about this on the podcast, and so I wrote it on the actual notebook pages so that I could see my own process months later when I talk to you about it. So there you go. The podcast has very much reached the point where it's influencing my note-taking, which is a novel experience for me because I have never transparently discussed the process of my outlining and writing a novel on a podcast before. So yeah, I did that. I rewrote down my list of the stories. The first one I thought was going to be Vo's prostitute crew heist and becoming friends with quote-unquote Grey Mouser. Well, no, the friendship still happened and Grey Mouser in quotation marks still happened. But yeah, prostitute heist, <laughs> which I won't get into here. I've talked about it before. Uh, yeah, that is not the first story. You'll learn what that is when I get to there, probably right after I talk about building a best buddy and building a fantasy city for these stories to take place in and with. In what order did I do those things? Well, as I see in my notes here from a little bit later, I try to date every time I write down on the page, again, to help me understand how I did the damn thing. I wrote, people are more important than places, gosh darn it. So let's draw up our gray mouser. And unlike the POV protagonist characters I drew up for each of the individual stories of Act 1, I told myself, you know, let's be sure to give her slash them a name up front, as I'm not always good about that. Her and Vo are meant to complement each other, so maybe I said to myself, I should review my notes on where I thought Vo would be in Act 2. So I did that, rewriting them down on these pages so I have everything all together, and often I found in the act of rewriting not only did it drill into my head, but it would lead me to think, hang on, with the knowledge I have now, as opposed to when I made those notes earlier, I might actually change these aspects of Vo, etc. And it led me to making some new ones, like how, you know, this city, as I saw it in my mind, would be the opposite of where Vo is from. It's multicultural, it's luxurious, it's diverse, it's full of variety, and it's connected to the world. In my mind, it's a port and a center of trade, you know? So I thought, hang on, I should probably look at the cultural iceberg diagram, but not fill out too much in advance. Uh, you know, let each story kind of tell itself kind of thing. And maybe I learned new things about the culture and so on from the thing. What's the cultural iceberg diagram? I will link to that in the show notes. It's a very useful world building tool. In a nutshell, it's a diagram with like a list of a bunch of things that you could easily see on the surface about any given culture. And then the majority of things about that culture are below the surface. It's a pretty straightforward metaphor, handy thing to look through, not as a checklist where you have to touch upon every single thing in a story. But as is often the case, I find with checklists related to writing, it's a great set of writing prompts that might get your imagination going. And finally, when I was like, well, what am I going to base the city on? Or what am I going to draw upon? You know, maybe other things. Well, I'm going to get into that with the episode devoted to it. So I'll just close by here with my fun realization at the end of my opening book two outlining work. I went, hang on, think about all of the friggin' research I did on Lagos, Nigeria, where I was going to set a novel until I decided, long story short, that that novel was not a story really for me to write. I'll tell you more about that and the whole thing of designing and building a fantasy city to set a bunch of stories in two episodes from now, because next episode is going to be all about building a best buddy who will also be a protagonist alongside Vo. And yeah, I'm going to wrap this up a little early. Episodes aren't usually this short, but... 
I feel like I covered a lot today. And if you're like me and you listen to a lot of podcasts, having an episode of one that you follow be a little shorter, a little more bite-sized is not the worst thing because, hey, cool, you got through that episode. Now you can hop over to another one for another show or you can hop over to the beginning of the archives if you're a new listener and check out the beginnings of this podcast, which I strongly recommend from my completely unbiased position. So I'm Writing a Novel features original music by Gloria Guns and is hosted by yours truly, Oliver Brackenbury. If you'd like to submit a question, then please email it to so I'm writing a novel at gmail.com. Bonus points if you record yourself and send me an MP3 I can cut into the show. Doesn't have to be fancy, using your phone is fine, just keep it clear and concise. You can also holler at the show on Twitter. Look for at so underscore writing. That's at so writing. Please consider sharing the show with anybody who might like it, leaving a review on iTunes, and checking out patreon.com slash so I'm writing a novel. Patrons get to be thanked in the final novel, listen to episodes of the podcast a week early, and even enjoy a bonus podcast called So I Wrote a Novel, where I read and comment on chapters of previous works, starting with my first novel, Junkyard Leopard. Thanks for hanging out with me, and I'll see you soon.